Welcome to episode 19 of The Sherry Sylvester Show. I have been working at the intersection of public policy and politics my entire career, playing on some of the roughest terrain in the world. I'm a boomer who organized on campus against the Vietnam War, shaming my greatest generation father who had fought heroically in World War II. I worked for the city of Portland, Oregon, where they were planting the progressive seeds that would lead to the current state of ruin for that once beautiful city. I battled alongside party bosses in New York City and New Jersey. I was in Madison Square Garden when Bill Clinton accepted the nomination for president, and I was in Cleveland when the Republicans nominated Donald Trump in 2016. Politics and the public policies that come with it have always been a vicious and pa passionate battleground in this country, but during most times that has been one of our strengths. But now, somehow, our different views are working against us. After 40 years on the front line, I can say with authority that it has not been as hateful and frankly hopeless in America since the Civil War. We have disagreed before, but we haven't hated like we do now. My guest today, Alexandra Hudson, believes she sees a way out by returning to civil discourse one person at a time. Lexi is a writer and adjunct professor at Indiana University with a public policy degree from the University of London. Her book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, details ways that we can turn down the heat on our current discussions by looking inward as well as re reaching out to others. Though she is the daughter of Miss Manners, she doesn't think we can solve our problems just by being nice. She's going to talk to us today about what she sees as a path to heal the divide between us. Lexi, welcome to Texas and welcome to the show. Thanks, Sherry, for having me. A pleasure to be here. I wanted to talk to you about the title. You chose to focus on the soul rather than to look at intellect or different different mm -hmm. I I was when I was reading your book, I was thinking a lot about David Brooks's book, How to Know a Person. Mm where he talks a lot about looking into other people, about taking the focus off ourselves, and mm. I like that. But you took a different focus, which is more introspective. What made you choose that? The soul is this sort of transcendent, immortal part of who we are. It's kind of what makes us you know, uniquely human. I actually took my title, The Soul of Civility. It's homage to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. I had the privilege of just a week and a half ago speaking at the Alabama Supreme Court in Montgomery. Uh, steps from Dr. Reverend Dr. Luther King, uh, his church. You mean in the, in the building? Did you address the actual Supreme Court? There, there were members. There were jurists. It was a group of educators, jurists, cool. uh, lawyers um, that that were that were present. But it, it, the, the Supreme Court is right next door to Dr. King's church on Dexter oh, Avenue, wow. and so I he's a, a, a great intellectual influence on me. And I got to talk about an aspect of the book I don't get to talk about often enough, which is civil disobedience as a as a duty of citizenship and a, a part of the tradition of, of true civility mm -hmm. as I define it. And the title of my book comes from a part of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail where he says that segregation hurts both parties. Mm -hmm. It hurts the segregated and the segregator. It gives the segregated a full sense of inferiority and the segregator a full sense of superiority. It deforms 
their soul. It makes both parties less human. And I realize that the same is true about incivility. We hear a lot today about the apocalyptic rhetoric that, that the stakes are too high to be decent and kind to the other side. And and yet we insufficiently appreciate that when we engage in, in malice, cruelty, violence towards our fellow human being, that we don't just hurt them, that we hurt ourselves too, mm-hmm. that it's its own punishment, being, being cruel and malicious uh, to, to our fellow human beings, but being uh, acts of charity, gracious kindness, acts of civility, that is mutually ennobling. It, it, it elevates the humanity, makes us more humane and human, um, both giver and receiver of acts of civility. So it really gets to the crux of, of my argument. And um, so Dr. King's a big, a big part of that story. Well, it's interesting to me. I mean, there's a lot of discussions about how we got to this point of, of incivility, and, and a lot of people blame Trump. Some people blame Clinton. Some people blame uh, social media. But as, as I said, I've been in uh, politics a long, long time, and I came in just as we were beginning to use polling to test communication method messages and so when by the time Clinton was running we were testing like every word to mm. find out how it responds to and a lot uh, how people respond to it a lot of people think polling when politicians uh, speak from the polled messages that they're trying to persuade people mm. but we don't bother with persuading in polling you find out who uh, uh, disagrees with you, and you don't talk to them. You don't mm. care. You don't send your mail to them. You don't target your, your radio to them. You are looking for people that can't will align as allies. That's the first target. And the second target is filling empty heads. Mm. So that's why I, I was reading some... We have part of our division is that one whole half of the country doesn't know what the other half is thinking. Hmm. I mean, they can say, I just read some statistics that that uh, only about 20% of Trump's voters know about the allegations against him. Hmm. And on the other side, you know, 10, 15% understand that there are allegations against Hunter Biden, hmm. that there are allegations against uh, Joe Biden for influence peddling. So part of it seems to me, you're trying to infuse a civility on people that are dealing with a different set of reality. Hmm. How do you deal with that? It's a a great point that there are many epiphenomena in our modern world that have contributed to this problem. You know, we like to blame Donald Trump, social media, the profit motives of our news cycle that um, create echo chambers and and make more money, the more incendiary, the the rage machine, you know. Um, But part of my argument zooms out and looks at this question from a global perspective. And what I discovered when I surveyed the human experience is that this is a timeless human Mm. problem. My book is about the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? This Mm -hmm. This is the core question of democracy, of the classical liberal project. How do we peacefully coexist in a pluralistic society with competing visions of of the good, and yet, as I as I zoomed out and kept reading, studying, I, I surveyed, um, you know, ethical, religious, spiritual, philosophical documents from across history, from across culture. I realized that we've been grappling with this question as long as we've been around as a species. So I think that what I offer is, I think, a much needed humility to this topic. That no single politician, technology cultural phenomena is the problem and no single public leader policy no book 
is the is the is the part of the solution that this is an intractable timeless problem and that all we can do is control ourselves and and seek to make you know reclaim our own power our own sphere of influence and seek to be a part of the solution in our everyday my theory of social change is inherently organic local individual spontaneous that mm-hmm. there are no magic levers there are no top down uh, it's it's organic it's spontaneous it's voluntary it's bottom up so is what we're looking for here uh, really, I think many people come to this and think, I know in my church we have a lot of these, uh, we have workshops on how to talk and how to be mm. in community. And uh, I go to a very liberal church. I'm Episcopalian, and so I'm a conservative in the church. And what I find is that they're the strategy is to get them to convince me to think differently. Hmm. And what I picked up from reading your book and what I hope the goal is, but you'll tell me if it's wrong, is the tolerance for disagreement. It's, it's I can be in the mm-hmm. same room, mm-hmm. in the same parish, mm-hmm. in the same family with mm-hmm. people who view the world very mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were talking about Martin Luther King and what he said about segregation, mm-hmm. and yet th- that has been rejected by a big chunk mm-hmm. of, of the DEI mm-hmm. advocates who believe that segregation is healing. Right. Uh, who was it just last week that said, we should just get away from white people. Mm. So so what's your, what's your strategy? How, how, if you go into a room, how would you direct people who were in disagreement. It's an excellent... What would you do to Congress? <laughs> what would you do to Congress? Well, it's it's really important. I part of my story is that, you know, as as you mentioned, I was raised by Judy the Manners lady uh-huh. and you know raised to be kind to people, but I and, and my mother always taught us to be to, how to set the table um, and I always question rules. I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate mm-hmm. rules. I hate being told what to do, but I generally follow these rules of etiquette uh, and, and common courtesy um, because my mother said they would work well for me in work and school and life, and she was right until I found myself in federal government. I was at the United States Department of Education 2017 to 2018, a deeply divided time in our mm-hmm. world, in our nation's right. capital. And I experienced that division at a microcosm in my everyday in government. On one hand, I saw people who had sharp elbows. They were bellicose. They were hostile. They were overtly you know, willing to dispose the rules of decency in order to step on anyone to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And I need to stay away from those people. There was another contingent that at first I thought was my contingent. They were polished and poised and polite. And yet these are the people who would smile at me and others one moment and stab us in the back the next. And the second contingent really perplexed me because my mother had said growing up that manners mattered because they were an outward expression of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. So that galvanized um, for me um, to, and clarified for me the, the essential distinction between civility and politeness, which is a core argument throughout my book, and being in this environment of anti-human flourishing for a year of my life mm-hmm. galvanized me to write this book. And I, I I call myself a refugee from federal government. I left government. I fled to the American Midwest. And there's I, I wrote this book to be a handbook for everyday citizens to be a part of social healing. I didn't write it for Congress. You asked, what would I do <laughs> in Congress? I didn't, you know, if, if anyone listening knows a congressperson or a local, uh, you know, do, do give it to them. But I, I, I just saw firsthand how intractable and, and, and effectual things at the time 
top down are and and that's why my theory of social change it, it, it is bottom up it's empowering and equipping citizens to reclaim uh, civility as I define it which is basic respect for the decency and and personhood of our fellow citizens our fellow human beings and you're absolutely right the goal is not perfect agreement it's how do we coexist amid disagreement peacefully and amicably how do how might we even thrive and flourish mm-hmm. amid this disagreement this is the core question of a democracy and it is an open question because as a student of history i know that human community um, civilization itself democracy is fragile it is never a foregone conclusion it is it is it, it is an open question will it will it will it sustain it is not and it, it is not um something that is guaranteed to exist in perpetuity yeah, a democracy now, as we know, both sides believe, both the left and the right, believe that democracy is under threat. That uh, I, w- I heard uh, someone speaking the other day, Caitlin Flanagan. I mean, she believes we're in the final days of our democracy, regardless of what the happens. The funny thing, it's always been thus. You know, this, this sort of apocalyptic rhetoric has right. always been around. Like Martin Luther, I'm a Protestant uh-huh. as well. Martin Luther thought he was living in the end days. He thought he literally called the Pope the Antichrist. You know, that that St. Paul, he thought he was in the end days. Like, it's uh-huh. it's funny to, it's that's why it's really helpful to be a student of history, to ground yourself. Like, we've been here before. I love history. Um, it's both a caution to us and a comfort. Things have been bad before mm-hmm. when you survey the human condition. We've done horrible, abominable things to one another. And yet um, things are, and, and, and it, it could get bad again. That's why it's a, ca- a caution to us. But it's also a comfort that things are not as bad as they have been, um, as they could be. We're not amidst a literal civil war that killed you know, half a million, over half a million Americans. We're not, uh, we're not fighting a revolutionary war that also you know, ended in, 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 in much bloodshed, that, that uh, we, we don't live in Jim Crow era. We don't have legalized, institutionalized segregation like these are these are our ways in which things are better, but they, but it has been bad, and that's um that's a comfort to us. But it's also a, a reminder that again, our, our 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 peaceful and flourishing way of life is not a foregone conclusion. It, it's it's true. I mean, I think about uh, slavery and those times, and we did fight, but it and that was important that we fight, and at that time it was clear that there was a moral high ground. Hmm. There was a moral high ground. They had tried to negotiate it. They had tried since they were negotiating it in 1776. Mm-hmm. We were talking last mm-hmm. night about William Penn. You mm-hmm. had a whole faction of Americans that wanted no part mm-hmm. of slavery. The first anti-slavery meeting in the world was held in Philadelphia. Mm. I mean, so Americans were leading the charge there, but they could never negotiate it out. But what I see different now is that neither side has the moral high ground. As much as it pains me as a conservative to say this, we Mm. simply do not. These are disagreements that we can work out. Mm. You know, should we we spend more money Mm -hmm. to uh, make conditions better on the ground, or should we conserve our money and incentivize people to make conditions better for themselves? I think it's a great point. There's there's weaknesses uh, in the extremes of both sides, the political aisle, and that's why I call myself you know, a partisan of humanity, a partisan of human dignity. My book, it came out three days after Hamas invaded Israel. Uh-huh. And at first, that was, it was, you know, of course, 
um, abhorrent to see kids being slaughtered. And I thought, like, how can I be talking about civility when we're at war and there's just such, you know, inhumanity in the world? And then I realized my book is needed now more than ever because it is a humanistic manifesto. It is a, a book that extols the gift of being human in mm -hmm. ourselves and in others. And that is exactly the message that we need in these barbaric and dehumanizing times where we are inclined to, to instrumentalize and to dehumanize, depersonalize right. the other when the stakes feel high, when they feel existential. That's in times of war. That's in divisive presidential election cycles that we right. are amidst right now. You know, one of the great hopes that I have, I don't know if you'll agree with me because we, we, last night we had the, the uh, we were taping this right after Super Bowl uh, Sunday, but I, what the, the image that I love is after a big game. Hmm. We particularly see it in the NBA, mm -hmm. you know, and the fans are like so divided, you know, we hate Miami, we love New mm. York, we're for the Spurs. When the game is over, the players are all on the court or on the field mm. hugging each other mm. because they all work for the NFL or the NBA. They mm. went to school together, mm -hmm. some of them since they were little kids, or they played together on other teams. They generate that drama. Hmm. But it's not them. And they're very clear it's not them. And, you know, I love that. You'll see these, you know, quarterbacks going back and forth and they'll go and hug each other and congratulate themselves and congratulate each other on how well they did, how well they're doing, hmm. how's the wife, how's the kids. That's if I always want politics to be like that. Hmm. We have we have some of that in the I'll tell you one story. In the Texas Senate, uh, the House, a couple of sessions ago, broke into a fistfight. At the same time, the Texas Senate was filibustering to close. And uh, totally filibustered for like two hours, killed a bill. It was Democrats filibustering against a Republican. Could not have been more polite. Hmm. Expressing, I really love this senator. I really respect her, but can't let this pass. Hmm. And it was, I, I don't know, is that politeness? Those are, there's imposed rules of civility in mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. The gentleman from Alabama can now speak. <laughs> the gentlelady from Kansas can speak. How do those, do those rules help? That, that gets to a core argument in my book about okay. the essential distinction between civility and politeness. As I saw in government, there are people who uh, were well-mannered and, and ruthless. And so what I realized is that politeness is external, it's technique, it's etiquette, it's it's manners, um, it's superficial, whereas civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart, a way of seeing others as our moral equals, an orientation towards them, seeing them as as um, beings wor worthy of a bare minimum of, res of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community, as our, as our fellow citizens, and that crucially, sometimes actually respecting someone Actually loving someone requires being impolite. It means telling a hard truth. It means engaging in robust debate. It means saying, I, I, I adore you, I respect you, but I think that you're wrong on this bill and I'm not going to let it pass. So that's actually um, a, way of, a way of respecting someone, not pretending difference doesn't exist, but, mm -hmm. but grappling with those differences head on. Uh, I love etymology, the story of our language is throughout my book, and I think it's often right, very yeah, illuminating. I, so the etymology of civility and politeness supports this distinction. So civility uh, or politeness comes from the Latin root, root 
polare, which means to to smooth or to polish. And that's what politeness does. It's superficial. It's external. It sweeps difference under the rug, papers over difference, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. Whereas civility comes from the Latin root kiwitas, which is the etymological uh, root of our words civilization, citizen, citizenship, and the city. And that's what civility is. It's the duties, the conduct, the habits, the mores befitting a citizen in the city, which sometimes requires conduct that, that is radically impolite. Protest, sit-in, civil disobedience. That's all part of this tradition. America was founded on, on protest, on civil disobedience. Right, the, yeah. the Boston Tea Party wasn't polite. It was it was rebelling against the the artifice, the, the, the hypocrisy of, of of a tea party, you know, pretending that everything's okay and proper when when there is like deep injustices happening. Um but but it but it but um it's 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 never taking the humanity and the bare minimum of respect that we owe the other out of sight. It's saying, I respect you enough to tell this truth or to, to, to take this stand, but I'm not going to let my desire to win obscure the, the reality of the gift of being human, that, 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 that the, the respect, the dignity that you possess. Well, in, in your book, when I saw that, I, I wanted to ask you more about it because I found it troubling. I can tell you the hard truth, you know, I have been a conservative communicator for a long time. It's, but, but I can say that I'm going to have lunch with a, a liberal newspaper publisher today. I can tell him the hard truth. He's not going to hear it as hard truth. He's going to hear it as my zany ravings, probably. So it's your truth that you're telling, because they're going to tell you the hard truth right back. It's an and, art and form. Then, it's an so art. How, how do you negotiate that down? I call civility the art of human flourishing and it is an art it's not a perfect science human life human relationships are far too complex to be reduced to essentialized to a, a list of static maxims and mm -hmm. rules that it is it requires discretion it requires knowing when it's appropriate to break the rules in order to to, to foster human flourishing well so tell me how that would work at dinner let's say uh that we bring you to Texas and you go out to dinner this evening and there's someone at your table who says, you know, Lexi, uh, you've got two children, another one on the way. If you really care about your family, you wouldn't be on the road. You'd be home with them. That's what you should be doing. Uh, why are you doing this? This is the problem that we've got in America. We've got too many women running all over and not taking care of their kids. It's, that's the hard truth, Lexi. <laughs> that's what you're ignoring. <laughs> you know, I think it, it it requires a level of charity and, and grace. On, on, on there, there, there's a, a reciprocal obligation of civility. It's, uh -huh. it's not just what you say. It's it's also how you how you receive it as well. So you know, it's for, for example, I take a lot of criticism, an enormous amount. I'm a you know public figure. I'm a writer. I've put myself out there in writing this book and, and talking about human dignity. When people find it much easier to diminish the dignity of people they want to beat or own. And um, and yeah, I, I, I have to, you know, take a step back and say, where is criticism valid? Where where isn't it valid? And and you know, how do I incorporate valid criticism and and, and uh, well, what's the first off? line back? What's the first line back to that? I mean uh, you don't I, I need you to understand my life. I need mm. you to understand where I'm I mean what's the first I think those first lines are are really important. Yeah, reasonable minds can disagree. That's mm -hmm. that's I think I think that is uh -huh. that is the case. I love the story. You know, your question was about 
the application of right. civility versus politeness in, uh -huh. a, in a social setting. I love the story of Queen Victoria hosting the Queen of Persia to a state dinner. Uh -huh. She had the Persia as her, uh, Queen of Persia as her dinner guest, and, and of course this is Victorian England, of which Queen Victoria presided, and it's like sure. defined by arcane, arbitrary rules of, of etiquette. And so the, the, the queens sit down, and um, the Queen of Sheba, or Queen of Persia, does the unthinkable. She takes what is intended as a finger bowl and tips it to her lips and drinks it like soup. Uh -huh. Violation of this, you know, prime rule of Victorian Sure. England. What does Queen Victoria do? Is she a fastidious kind of stickler for the rules and shaming her guests? No. She does the exact same thing. She takes the finger bowl and tips it to her lips as well, suspending her own rules of propriety and etiquette. Why? For the sake of a friendship, of 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 human flourishing, mm -hmm. and so it goes it goes both ways. It can and, you know suspending the rules of propriety can mean having a hard conversation and telling an uncomfortable truth, or it can mean suspending you know rules of 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 etiquette that actually can be divisive, and mm -hmm. and they can be tools of 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 self righteousness of weaponizing the rules of of politeness and propriety for the sake of making oneself feel better. And I know the rules and you don't. I'm an insider. You're an outsider. And 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 just fostering inflaming our self love and 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 smugness, which you know we we uh, we would do well to to in fact diminish. Iris Murdoch, uh, the Irish philosopher, she said that we have an obligation to conquer and diminish our fat relentless ego. She said, day in, day out, that's our task. To be fit for society, we have to conquer our fat, relentless ego, day in, day out. And and the reality is, um, politeness can and has been across history and culture, this this tool of, of self-aggrandizement, of self-righteousness. I, I know the rules, uh, and you don't. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Dr. Carol Swain, uh, who is a prof who is opposed to DEI and has led the fight against critical race theory and, and DEI. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis in that program using the term belonging. And uh, she said when she was at Princeton, she uh, and she had tenure, when she was at Princeton, people asked her if she felt like she belonged there. And her answer was, uh, you know, someone should have showed me which fork to use. Mm. Because she was put in a, she, she had a very hard scrabble upbringing. She was put into a society that was different. Hmm. But she did not feel intellectually mm -hmm. that she didn't belong there. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we, the, the emphasis of dividing, so what we would have taken her now with, and put all mm -hmm. the other African-American students in some place where they wouldn't have to eat with forks mm -hmm. or, or eat mm -hmm. with the uh, five forks or whatever they put on the table. I don't know what the strategy would be. Generation Z. They, I have uh, grandchildren that are Generation Z. They tell me that some issues just can't be discussed. Hmm. We just can't discuss them. Mm -hmm. We can't discuss race. We can't di mm -hmm. discuss transgender issues. Mm -hmm. We can't discuss these things because they're given. Mm. So how do you break through that with a generation coming up? You're, you're not Z. You're... M? Where, where are you? You're something. <laughs> I'm a millennial. You're, I'm you're squarely, a millennial. I'm squarely a millennial. It, it's a great point. How do you have a conversation with someone about an, uh, an item that's open for you, closed for them? This is where I think curiosity could go a very long way. The final chapter of my book is entitled On Misplaced Meaning and Forgiveness. I, uh, I, I, I suggest that 
many people as these traditional touchstones of meaning, community, family, faith have been on the decline Mm -hmm. in recent decades, that people have relocated their ultimate source of meaning, their identity from these institutions into politics and public life and political issues. And one symptom of that is that, you know, it was just the Super Bowl last night. That's not, that's, there used to be these areas of life that were politics free. And that's not a foregone conclusion anymore. Like, previously apolitical environs now have a political dimension. People are are activists and, you know, where you where you send your kids to school, where you live, what newspaper you read, where you grocery shop, who you're boycotting, who you support. All of these have a political dimension to them now right. in, in ways that was not the case before. That's a symptom of misplaced meaning that this another symptom is the number of family and friendships that have been severed because of Trump, because of COVID, that, you know, your, your view on one issue is enough for me to cut you off and, and no longer have a relationship with you. That's a symptom of disordered loves, of misplaced meaning. So I argue that, you know, it's not enough just to say we have an unhealthy addiction to politics. We're, we're undermining our democracy by overdoing democracy and talking about the hard things, the culture wars all the time. We're all exhausted and, and running on empty emotionally, that it's not enough just to say, okay, there's a problem here. What do we do about it? We have to First of all, make politics matter less, relegate it to its proper position in our lives. If we're only doing politics all the time, that's bad for us, our souls and for our society. Um, and then secondly, we have to replace it with better and more beautiful things, things that are apolitical, things that give us life. I talk about friendship. I ca- talk about um, encountering beauty and the sublime in nature, things that fill us up emo- emotionally. I talk about curiosity, that curiosity is a recipe for the life well lived. It's just inherently the stuff of the good life, just having a sense of wonderment about others and the world around you. But it's also an underrated tool to healing our deep divisions today. Someone someone um, tells you that, you know, talking about transgenderism is a is a closed a closed issue. Just saying, you know, why? Tell me more about why you feel that way. And having an earnest you know, interrogation and a posture of, of humility and, and wonder about that. Mm-hmm. And you'll be surprised how how quick that is to, um, you know, chip away at the that tough exoskeleton that once was a, something was a closed issue, just like, you know, gentle, gentle openness and gentle questioning. And that 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 usually leads to reciprocal, you know, openness and questioning. And too often we live in this age of moral certainty that everyone feels like they have absolute certainty on all things at all times mm-hmm. and that's comfortable we're, we don't we 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 like it we don't like to feel vulnerable we, we prefer to feel invulnerable and to say that we don't know is an uncomfortable it's a, it's a vulnerable act um but it's but it's a powerful one the curious that the curiosity the vulnerability is a powerful tool underrated tool to healing our deep divides today and, and faith helps as well. That's right. <laughs> we have one more minute. I know you're organizing across the country. You've got this Civic Renaissance program. Yes. And tell us just a little bit about that and where people can go on the web to uh, find out how to become more curious. I'm on all the platforms, unfortunately, kind of a, a necessary evil That's these terrible. days. That's terrible. I'm sorry I know, to hear that. But, um, Civic Renaissance is where I invite people to join me. It's my, my publication, my newsletter, Intellectual Community, dedicated to beauty goodness and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us flourish and lead richer and more fulfilled lives today. Well, you can't beat beauty, goodness, and truth. And of course, we have all of that in Texas. That's right. Probably more of it, bigger and better. Lexi, thanks so much for coming by and talking to us. Uh, You can subscribe to The Sherry Sylvester Show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you'd like to receive my Ninth in Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com, Ninth in Congress. Thank you.